Welcome to episode two of Kindred Cast, Lion Tree's guide to the world of tech, media, and everything in between. I'm your host, Aviva Rumani. For those who tuned in to our premiere episode, thank you and keep listening. Here's what's on tap today. First up is Lion Tree's Leslie Mallon, who will give us some visibility into the trends shaping the public markets. Next, we'll have Jeremy Adam back to pick your brain with a KinCast quiz question. Stay tuned until the end to find out if you got it right. Then, by popular demand, we're going to hear part two of Lion Tree CEO R.A. Borkoff's recent conversation with entertainment mogul Scooter Braun, who guides the careers of folks like Justin Bieber, Kanye West, and Carly Kloss as part of his diversified company, SB Projects. Next, we have Kindling, where we'll explore the trends that Lion Tree Growth is observing. Here we go. So let's check in with Leslie Mallon and get some insights on the public markets. Hi, this is Leslie Mallon. I head Lion Tree's public markets business, and here are the TMT quick hits. In our pilot, we talked about the old adage, three steps in a stumble after three hikes in a new Fed cycle. While not exactly dramatic, the markets have actually taken a bit of a breather. With that said, positives regarding tax reform and regulatory easing are still priced in. How did stocks in the sector fare for Q1? Activision was the fourth best performer in the S&P, rising 38%, while Viacom was the seventh, up 32%. Apple's 24% increase put it as the number one performer in the Dow by a very large margin. On the flip side, retail and department stores were among the major drags on the S&P for the period. I'm seeing two key themes emerging. One, man versus machine. Will robots end up taking a lot of jobs from humans? I think so. Number two, over-the-top TV, aka OTT, is moving ahead at a fast and furious rate, and the space is certainly getting crowded. Regarding man versus machine, there has been a huge influx of research focusing on the impact robots might have on employment. Historically, the National Economic Research Bureau found that for every new industrial robot introduced, six jobs were eliminated. But what happens as robots become cheaper and more capable? Here are some interesting stats. A recent PricewaterCoopers analysis concludes that by 2030, robots could take a massive 38% of jobs in the U.S., 30 to 35% of jobs in the U.K. and Germany, and 21% of jobs in Japan. Most impacted are the transportation, storage, manufacturing, and retail sectors. According to ABI research, annual shipments of industrial robots are set to see double-digit growth globally through 2025, when nearly a million units will be shipped. And Boston Consulting Group recently said the number of industrial robots across the world could quadruple by 2025. On the flip side, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin recently commented that he doesn't think workers have anything to worry about for another 50 to 100 years. Personally, I take the under on that bet. This job displacement theme aside, more robots in the workplace will lead to more efficiency and productivity for corporations. Regarding OTT TV, the onslaught of new products and launches has been nonstop as of late, and there's no turning back. Comcast is reportedly launching an over-the-top product called Xfinity Instant TV, targeting broadband subs in their territory that don't want a traditional bundle. The packages will cost between $15 to $40 per month. Verizon is reportedly preparing to launch a nationwide OTT TV service this summer, 
and has been securing content rights. YouTube TV just launched in five key markets and sports-centric Fubo TV also officially brought its new platform out of beta. Both are offering 50 channels for $35 per month. So what does this all mean for the sector? Well, uptake so far in virtual MVPD land has not been eye-popping by any stretch. But the TV experience is changing and the traditional providers need to adjust as new players jump in to try to take a piece of the pie. The battle here has just begun. Which brings us to our fact of the day about digital video. YouTube's video views per minute reportedly increased a huge 47% year over year to approximately 4.1 million. Eyeballs and engagement clearly continue to go up at a rapid clip. There's been a lot of bad press lately regarding digital advertising and negative placement. But to me, these are just growing pains that will sort themselves out. The secular trend towards digital advertising is intact. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next time with some more quick hits. Jeremy Adam has today's KinCast quiz. The NCAA tournament wrapped up on April 3rd, with UNC defeating Gonzaga 71-65 in a tight matchup. NCAA March Madness Live generated an all-time best 4.4 million live video streams for the championship game, a roughly 30% increase over last year. How many live streams did March Madness Live net over the course of the NCAA tournament? A, 61 million, B, 75 million, C, 98 million, or D, 123 million? In our debut episode, Arya sat down with artist manager Scooter Braun in his LA offices to ask him the four questions. Here's part two of the conversation where we hear his thoughts on streaming, his firm's unique approach to client acquisition and retention, and his philosophy on mentorship. Scooter, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. You're a young guy, 35 years old, still building the company. We're going to talk about all the successes, not just the failures. But I mean, have you had a chance to fail yet? Or do you just are you anticipating the fact that you're trying to train your employees, you're trying to build a company and a culture that can embrace it so you try new things? Look, I, I think this idea of had a chance to fail, I failed hundreds of times. Um, I just don't think people see them as failures because I didn't treat them as failures. If I gave up, then that failure in that moment would have been cemented as a failure because I chose to continue and treat it as a pit stop. People just see it as part of my journey. Like they could have seen Ariana firing me, you know, a failure, but I chose to continue to build the business and develop a strategy and she came back you know, to the company and signed a longer term contract, you know, and now people look at it as like, oh, my God, isn't that amazing? She left and came back. And like, I think it's all relative. You know, I do this thing when I speak where I always ask everyone, if you could make a billion dollars, would you do it? If you didn't have to do anything immoral and everyone raises their hand. And then I say, OK, how much of that money would you spend if you or someone you loved was sick and they were dying? How much money would you spend to save them? And everyone raised their hand. They'd spend all of it. And I always say to them, I was like, do you have your health? Do the people you love, are they healthy right now? Well, if they, if you have that, you're better off than being a billionaire yesterday. Like, it's just perspective. Um, so I, you know, yeah, I'm a young guy. I expect to fail 100 more times. But I get to wake up in the morning and go again. It's a great model. It's a great culture, and you're applying it. Well, tell me about the company. I mean, you obviously manage the careers of not just Ariana Grande, but Justin Bieber, Carly Claus, you know, brands and superstars. How do you find them? How do you build them? Uh, Kanye West, obviously another one, huge. 
Um, how do you how do you find the superstars? How do you know? And how do you think about the brand building business right now? I always compare the superstars to like finding love. You can look as hard as you want, and you might not find it. And then one day it finds you. You know. So with Justin, it was being on the internet that day, and he wasn't looking for me. I had a concept of something I was looking for, and I stumbled onto it. And it found me and my gut went off and I was like, okay, this is it. I know what to do. I see the next eight years clearly in my head. And, you know, with Ariana, I saw her sing this little, she was on a you know, secondary character on a Nickelodeon show. And I saw her sing this cover, one of Justin's songs and something clicked. And I was like, okay, why is no one, you know, making this girl a superstar? And I thought she had a manager. So I stayed away because I don't poach. And then six months later, I found out she'd been trying to get to me. And that was that, you know, um, Martin Garrix, I bet on a guy named Mike George. I thought he was super talented. He had another artist that I wasn't sure about, but I was really blown away with what the job he'd done. And I found out that, you know, that artist wasn't treating him well. And I went to him and said, look, you think I'm interested in the artist. I'm more interested in you. And for six months, I just bet on him, flew him around different festivals. And I knew he would come back. And one day he shows up and he signs a 17-year-old kid who becomes three years later the number one DJ in the world. You know, my gut said to bet on him and, you know, he and I just got back from a meeting and I love the guy, you know, and um, and sometimes they find you, Kanye. Kanye called me. We started having a conversation as friends. And then he goes, you know what? You should manage me. <laughs> you should team up with Izzy and you guys should manage me together. And I said, no, that's not a good idea. We're friends. Let's not go there. And uh, one day I get a phone call from Adidas and, and uh, they're in negotiations with him and I get a phone call from Def Jam and they said, hey, we're told not to talk to anyone but you. You're his manager. And I said, I'm not his manager. We just talked yesterday. And I called Kai and said, what's going on? He goes, I don't have time to wait. You're my manager. You know, and we've gone an amazing run. He's become one of my closest friends. Um, and you're building the brand in different ways. And probably yeah, yeah. We have Car Carly Kloss, uh, you know, number two earning model in the world. I've taken her there and she's just one of the kindest, most wonderful people in the world. And uh, our first scripted TV show, Scorpion on CBS, just got, got its fourth season on CBS. Um, our first movie was the biggest uh, grossing documentary of all time domestically. We're having a lot of fun and we're doing a lot of cool stuff. But, you know, it's it's all about kind of the adventure. It's wake up in the morning and say, what can we try today? And, you know, seeing where the adventure takes us. Yeah, it's very similar to how I think about the world as we build our firm as well. Um, hence the podcast. But the business is evolving. I mean, now you have so many different distribution models, not just in music itself, but outlets across the world, whether yeah. it's here or in China, and um, massive platforms. So does that help your journey when you think about the brand and what it could become? It's not just the music, the movies. I mean, it helps me because I'm a restless soul. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that the, um, the idea of doing the same old thing, regardless, you know, I, I've been speaking a lot about this, but this Albert Einstein quote, I'm not sure if I'm going to get it right today, but, you know, be not for success, but be a value. And, um, you know, to be successful and be a value are two very different things. You know, I could stay on the same exact track and make a ton of money because I put in the time and the effort and I could have a tremendous amount of success, but I'm not living up to my full potential and my value. Um, I think value is what you give to others. Success is what you give to yourself. And I think all these outlets allow me to kind of chase that restlessness of trying new things and creating value for myself and for others, uh, whether it be in the music business or the branding business or the tech business or philanthropy. And, you know, being able to take the freedom that I have from those other businesses and spread that out to other people. Yeah, my favorite uh, quote from Einstein is uh, related, but it says, I may not be any smarter than everybody else, but I 
definitely know how to stay with a problem for a longer period of time. <laughs> <laughs> Which means that you have to be comfortable wrestling with yeah. it at, in, order to, in order to find a solution. It's the journey. Mm-hmm. 100%. One of my uh, mentors is David Geffen. And, and I, it's I always have such an honor you know, saying that because when I was 19, I, I learned about him and studied him. And then now to have him as someone I can turn to in my life for advice, it's been incredibly valuable. And David's given me a tremendous amount of help over the years and kind of just guidance in life. Uh, one of the things that he he taught me was this idea. He said, look, in 100 years, no one's going to remember me. So they sure as hell won't remember you. Don't have an ego. And he's right, you know, and uh, you can't take yourself too seriously because this is a moment in time. And what are you going to do to add to others that continue because you don't get to? But one of the things I said to him, we first sat down, I said, I have to ask you, you've done it as well or better than anybody ever before. Um, when are you finally content? When is enough enough? And he looked at me like I was crazy and he said, never. He goes, that's not life. Life doesn't get you to a promised land. He goes, life goes up and down, up and down. There's days you're happy and there's days you're sad. And that's the journey. He goes, you need to read this poem. And he gave me this poem, Ithaca. It's an old Greek poem. And it speaks of traveling to this island of Ithaca. It's now my favorite poem. I named one of my companies after it. Hmm. It talks about traveling this island Ithaca. And, and it talks about the things that you'll see along the way. And when you finally reach Ithaca, if you find her poor, she did not treat you because it was always about the voyage. And I think that's one of the most important lessons you can have in life. Yeah, I always relate it back to the arc of life. Like you, you're, you have this perspective and you mentioned it. We're only here for a short period of time. And you have to know how to play into the arc of time because it eventually will end. So you have to accomplish as much as you can while you're here and then hopefully make it durable. Yeah. And what you're doing with SP Projects and your approach to life and your company and your culture and your artists, um, you are imparting more than just the, uh, the business. You're imparting a philosophy. I'm trying. So are you. That's why we get along. <laughs> <laughs> trying to. There's something very special. When people meet successful people, they get very excited because they want to know what the sauce is. But I think when you meet successful people that are happy, there's a whole different level of excitement. You want to be around those people. When I first met you, and it's a compliment to you on your own podcast, so take it. <laughs> but when I met you, I was like, oh, you know, who is he? And they explained. I said, what a you know, great guy. Everyone had amazing things to say about you and super successful. But it was your energy of like, you're a good guy. You know, and I and I saw you at the, the Jets game with your kid and like I see you at the concerts with your family and I, you know, I have dinner with you and your wife and like you get what it's really about that that all the work allows you to have the freedom to do the things that you love. Um, and I think that's why people gravitate towards you, because they want that sauce that you have that beyond the financial success. You have the true success, which is what we all work so hard for in the first place, which is to be happy. This may be the only podcast we have to do, actually. <laughs> no, I appreciate all that. And I feel the same about you. And I think it also the energy you're describing as it relates to you, Scooter, speaks to growth. Um, what you're going to do in the future is a different slope than people are looking at you today. And that's what's exciting to me about your company and how you're approaching the business and the artists. You just start thinking about things in a much faster way. And you are... Um, living in an age of technology disruption. And when you look at uh, your artists and you're thinking about, you know, where to break a song or where to uh, align with a platform, you know, what's the hot thing today? What is, what's the trend? Is it is it Snap? Is it Facebook? Is it Amazon? I think for every artist is different. I think um, some, some need Twitter. Some need Snapchat. Some need Instagram. You know, some need YouTube. Um, Facebook, I think, is the most powerful of them all, personally. 
because uh, I think it's a place where everything can live. Um, and it's the only place where people actually put their personal information. You know, so it's you get to see a real identity of somebody. Uh, but I think, you know, there's going to be, you know, musically just emerge. And you have all these different companies coming out, these different platforms. It's about how you use it. When I first went on Twitter, all these celebrities were on the suggested user list, and they were the only people over a million followers. And they all just talked to people they knew. And everyone else was very voyeuristic and just watched them. So I said, this is not how you should use this. So, you know, with Justin, we started following people and we started interacting with the fans. And Justin was the fastest growing person on Twitter to the point where they had to dedicate 10% of their servers just to his traffic. And he was the first person who wasn't on the suggested user list across a million people. And the second was me, you know, because I was doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's just about identifying a platform where people are and then deciding how you're going to use it. My philosophy, which you're pointing to, is is I go back to this is restlessness. I've always been the kid who wanted to understand how everything works. And why am I going to do that the same way that everyone else does it? You know, if I, I literally used to say, well, what do you mean old people move to Boca? Well, why do we have to wait till we're 80? If Boca is so good, why don't we just move to Boca now? Like, like, <laughs> like we should make young communities in Boca. And I used to call it Boca Youngo. It was like a joke. Also some tax advantages. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, I, and, and just my whole philosophy is why wait until I'm at, an, at that age if I can find ways to enjoy life now? Um, and I'm willing to put in the work because there's no substitute for anything. You know, hard work is the only way you get there. I'm affiliated with the Lincoln Center, obviously in New York, the iconic uh, music hall. And they have a global exchange a few times a year. And the next exchange they're having is with art times technology. So that is art and technology relate to each other over time. And I can't help but thinking about you and your artists because the way that a, a mature artist or a classic and iconic artist that have been around for you know 50 or 60 years thinks about technology is a lot different from how your artists think about it. Yeah. Because, you know, it has to be cons- consistently evolving and morphing and entrepreneurial in its own right. Mm-hmm. Um, so so how do you think about just the pure art, artistic nature of what you're doing and the distribution that you have available to you today? I, I tell artists today, you know, I go give talks. I was at USC the other day and they were like, how do we get to somebody like you? And I, I, my response is, what do you care? Like, why the fuck do you want to meet someone like me? I'm a suit now. You're given tools. You can break the entire world in your living room. Artists used to have to travel around this country region by region over long periods of time to hope to break just this country. Then they'd have to start all over again in a different country, in the next country, in the next country. And these amazing tools, thanks to technology, are given to you where you can share your craft and your ideas globally very, very quickly. So if you want to meet someone like me, What's the point? You want to meet me to be able to get to other people, to get to the masses. I'm a gatekeeper to the masses. Well, guess what? The gate is now wide open for everybody. So what you should do is try and get the masses and then hope someone like me calls and says, please, please let me work with you because I'm smart enough to know what to do now. But don't worry about getting to me first. And I think, you know, that's the beautiful part of technology and art. We've taken away this opportunity to stifle art. What do you mean? You could be a great artist and you go in somebody's office and they might not like you. And that's it. They're the gatekeeper. They've closed the door. And maybe you never get hurt because most great artists I know got no's along the way. Every one of my artists got tons of no's. But we built it up on YouTube so that they couldn't deny it anymore. And then they were like, how the hell did this happen? And I think that's what you're seeing here. 
you know, you're seeing artists taking it into their own hands. Would Chance the Rapper be Chance the Rapper if he didn't do it his way? I don't think so. You know, if Justin Bieber would have never gotten signed if it wasn't for YouTube. You know, it's I think technology is allowing artists to go direct to the consumer in a way we've never seen before. To the point where when Justin, you know, had his tough years and Gaga had her tough years, in the past, those gatekeepers might have said, you know what, they're, you know, they're losing it and close the door. And they would say, but I'm good now. I got healthy. I'm ready. And all the doors would have been closed. But now they got 80 million, 100 million people following them on the Internet. And they're like, guys, not only am I good now, but you've watched me go through the whole process because you've never left me. And I don't need the gatekeepers. I can speak to you right now from my phone. And there's a connection between the artists and their fans like we've never seen before. And have you ever had a situation where you um, have turned down an artist and you, it sh they showed up somewhere else given technology? Um, no, I've never turned down an artist where they've sh shown up somewhere else with technology, but I have missed out on artists where I was late, um, where I was like, damn, I wish I had that. I, I was speaking to him and someone else got to it first. Mm -hmm. I've had that happen. Someone wrote me on Facebook and I didn't know that they wrote me. Uh, and years later, I'm friends with this artist, Travis Scott. He's become a very big artist and he and I are friends. And I put him on, you know, this Justin song and like, we're boys. And I'm cleaning out my Facebook because I'm like, God, all these people write me. And I see Travis Scott. I'm like, what the heck? When did I become friends with this guy? Like, is this the real Travis Scott? And I click to see if he's ever written me. And four years earlier, he's written me, hey, I'm in Houston and I got this group and uh, we're not what people think. And I'm telling you, I'm talented and I'd love to get with you. I call Travis right there on his cell phone. And I said, Travis, I just get, got this message on Facebook. It's four years ago. You finally saw it. <laughs> it was him. And I had no idea. I'd completely missed out on the message. It goes back to one of your other uh, lessons for life, which is clean your inbox out. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> that was in the phase of my life where uh, I wasn't cleaning out the inbox as regularly as I should. So given this democratization of technology and art on technology, are the business models now caught up to that? or No. It takes a while. No, I think screaming is happening a lot faster than we we thought it would happen. Um, but I think that we're we're going to see even more. We're still going through the growing pains. We're teenagers, you know, and and we got we our knees hurt and our ankles hurt because we're growing so much. But um, I think in the next five to ten years, it's gonna it's gonna show what it is, and you know, we'll have something steady for a little while until the next piece of technology. I mean, technology is at least in the music business has always been the greatest disruptor. You know, the reason we have a music business is Tesla made the radio. Before then, there was no such, re there wasn't a reason for a music business. So technology actually created our entire business and then has continually disrupted it. So it's always funny to me when I see executives like fighting the wave of technology, because I'm like, you wouldn't even have a job if it wasn't for technology. It's just a new way to distribute content. And by the way, the one thing that never changes is self-discovery. As long as you can, you understand that, great music and self-discovery. You make great songs Things will happen no matter what people say. A hit is a hit is a hit. And the feeling of self-discovery, my dad going into a store and discovering some vinyl and someone giving me a mixtape for Biggie when I was at a basketball camp, that vinyl he found in that store and that Biggie experience, that was the same thing. That was self-discovery. Kids go on the internet now on SoundCloud and they hear something before it gets huge. There's a feeling of self-discovery. That will never change. Where people find self-discovery will change. But as long as you cater to that, you'll be successful in this business. Incredible. Thank you, Scooter. Now, Austin Criden will bring us up to speed on what his generation is obsessing about in today's Kindling. We all know that millennials are obsessed with their smartphones. 
So much so that 87% claim their phone never leaves their side. Another truth? Millennials don't really use their smartphones as well. Phones. In fact, forced to choose between texting or calling on their mobile phone, 75% of millennials choose texting, according to an open market survey. And why not? Texting is easy and instantaneous. Everything is automatically documented, and you can respond on your own schedule. As for voicemails, nope, we don't even listen or leave them. Which brings us to the rise of messaging and chat-based apps. Back in Q1 of 2015, according to Business Insider, the big four messaging apps of the time, WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, WeChat, and Viber, surpassed the then big four social networking apps, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn, in monthly active users, or MAUs. Today, WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger each have 1 billion plus MAUs, WeChat has 800 million, Kick and Snap have over 300 million, and finally, Viber and Line each have 200 million MAUs. With audiences like that, it's no surprise that brands and marketers are invading the space. Tencent's WeChat is widely recognized as the industry's best example. China's ubiquitous service is a one-channel customer experience, taking users through the entire sales funnel, from awareness to purchase in a way no other social media channel can. Over the course of 2016, we saw United States and European companies attempt to extend their own capabilities in the messaging arena, especially in regards to chatbots, which are automated, intelligent programs that approximate real-world text-based conversations with users. For example, Apple launched the iMessage App Store, Facebook Messenger opened up its chatbot framework, and finally, Kik, Twitter Direct Message, Skype, Line, Google, and Viber each launched their own chatbot frameworks. Most significantly, more than 30,000 branded chatbots and 1,600 iMessage apps hit the market from developers. Some experts say that chatbots could even replace 1-800 numbers entirely, offering more comfortable customer support experiences without the hassle of synchronous phone conversations, hold times, and annoying phone trees. Beyond customer support, Brands could create branded experiences that are enjoyable and entertaining, such as a digital scavenger hunt, personalized shopping suggestions, and more. This could be a huge opportunity in the United States, as only 30% of millennials report receiving messages from businesses on a regular basis, according to Open Market. And millennials are ready and willing. 75% say that receiving texts for appointment reminders Promotions, deliveries, payments, and surveys are very helpful, and two-thirds of them even like receiving coupons and product offers this way. Looking forward at 2017, it seems that Facebook is keen to focus on bots again at its F8 Developer Conference, which will be this Tuesday, April 18th in San Jose, California. According to David Marcus, Facebook's head of Messenger, they are, quote, doubling down and tripling down on bots, fully invested and in it for the long haul, unquote. Thanks for listening to this week's Kindling. So let's see if you got Jeremy's quiz question right. Over to you, Jeremy. How many live streams did March Madness Live net over the course of the NCAA tournament? A, 61 million. B, 75 million. C, 98 million, or D, 123 million? And the answer is C, 98 million. 
March Madness live streams were up 33% year over year. In addition, 23 million tuned into CBS to watch the championship game, and average TV viewership on CBS and Turner Sports during the tournament was 10.8 million, up 16% over last year. In other sports streaming news last week, Amazon and the NFL reached a one-year streaming deal, allowing Amazon to stream 10 Thursday night games. The price tag represents a five-fold increase over the NFL's agreement with Twitter last season. That's it for Kindred Cast. Hope you enjoyed it. You can hear the show first through the Kindred app or check it out on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Since we're a new show, we'd love it if you showed us some love on iTunes or Kindred. See you in a couple weeks. Audiation.